Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. You guys might have taken note of the fact that Kristen and I have been, you know, encouraging you to go watch Orange is the New Black on Netflix. It is a really incredible, compelling show full of really, really colorful characters who have pretty incredible and, again, compelling backstories. And when we put out the call to get uh, episode suggestions, one of the top requested episodes was to take a real look at real women in prison. Yeah, so here you go. Contest winner, Orange is the New Black versus Real Life Women's Prisons. And we're going to have to give just summaries of all of these different facets because there are so many different angles to what life is really like in women's prisons and who are those women, those very real women who are incarcerated. Um, But we're going to do the best we can to give you a comprehensive snapshot of of what life is like in there. And just for a snapshot as well of Orange is the New Black, it was created by Genji Cohen, who also created the show Weeds which I'm sure is a favorite among some listeners as well. And it's based on a memoir by the same name by a woman named Piper Kerman, who is Piper Chapman in the show. She's the main character. Yeah, and now Piper Kerman serves as a communications consultant for a firm in New York, and she also volunteers for the Women's Prison Association and has since joined their board. Yeah, it's pretty cool how she has parlayed her experience the year that she spent in prison, not just to write a best-selling memoir and make some cash off of turning it into a show, but to really use her platform, her privilege platform in a lot of ways to highlight the just horrific conditions that women are living in in prison and also the injustice, the rampant injustice that is our criminal justice system that is keeping not only women in prison, but also getting them, keeping them in this cycle of incarceration. So let's first talk about the show. Let's talk about some things. Oh, and I guess we should say, spoiler alerts ahead. If you have not seen Orange is the New Black, you might want to watch it before you listen to this podcast because we're going to share some things. Not too many crazy spoilers, yeah. but but still, we're going to fill you in yeah. on the show. Yeah. Um, well, so let's start uh, by talking about what kind of things the show got right, because I know, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm like, God, some of these things seem terrible. Some of them seem not so bad. For instance, a lot of the women have great camaraderie. Like, how accurate is this stuff? And so this is coming from um, a piece that Jeff Smith wrote. He's a former Missouri state senator who resigned his seat after pleading guilty to two counts of obstruction of justice, and he spent a year in federal prison. And we're also getting some of this information from a story that appeared on The Cut from New York Magazine. Uh, they sat down with five formerly incarcerated women and talked about Orange is the New Black and how accurate these portrayals of women and prisoners are. 
Yeah, and so some of the general things that it gets right is that small things have huge consequences. For instance, Smith talks about how one of his main strategies to stay safe, as he writes, because he weighs only 117 pounds, he's a pretty small guy, uh, was to quietly give stolen tomatoes and onions to certain powerful inmates, which effectively helped me build critical alliances because... What what might seem like minor infractions or social awkwardness kinds of things really do have outsized consequences. For instance, in the show, when you have Red essentially starving Piper, it, he he did, he wasn't at all surprised by that. He was like something like that could absolutely happen. And as a side note, with the whole starvation thing, courts have upheld prisons serving neutral loaf. As punishment and neutral oath for people who are not acquainted with it. It's the stuff that Piper was served when she went into the special housing unit, the shoe, which is essentially solitary confinement. And neutral oath is what, what it sounds like. It's a loaf of stuff that doesn't taste very good, but contains all of the nutrients necessary to keep you alive. Mm. So it's not quite starving someone mm. to death. Not yeah, not quite. Um, another thing that is accurate is just the fact of having to to kind of make do with what you have, creating something out of very little. For instance, uh, the Kool Aid lip gloss in the show. Uh, I think they made signs at one point, and they didn't have paint, so I think they used Kool Aid for that too. But also using uh, in the show, they've used maxi pads as shoes or as masks for when everybody got sick. Yeah, and then one big question that a lot of people had was, what about the sexual tension? Because the way that I described Orange is the New Black in my notes is that it kind of makes it look like women's prison is a hypersexual lesbian summer camp with really mean psychopathic counselors. Um, and the ex-prisoners said, yeah, you know, of course... People have urges, but the women also pointed out that the rampant sexy times that you see on Orange is the New Black are overblown a bit. It's not as common for women to be constantly having sex with other women in prison or jail. Right. And they did get it right also that the prison administrators really do not care about the women as people and that discipline can be pretty arbitrary. Also, that visitation can be depressing when when relatives come to visit you in prison. Yeah, on the one hand, you have Piper's family and friends coming, and it's and it's usually pretty awful because they don't want to. It's like they're in denial that she's actually in prison or they're being too gawky about it. It's like one or the other. And then you have instances in the show like when um, Diana's mom is sitting there and she's so angry and just trying to get information from her boyfriend as to whether or not he's been sleeping around. And just all of the, you know, those those two worlds colliding. Um, so understandably, visitation, when the outside meets the inside, it can certainly breed some discontent. Yeah. And then um, the whole issue, there was one episode of Orange is the New Black where um, one woman Big Boo is upset that her kind of ex-girlfriend is is leaving. 
And so there's this whole issue of antagonizing people before they are set to be released in order to try to get them stuck in jail for longer. Yeah, and in that case, that's someone wanting to keep someone that they love from leaving. But a lot of times that's what happens with enemies. you got to watch out if you're about to leave. And if you've made an enemy, uh, there's a good chance that someone might try to sabotage your release. And speaking of release, and this is something we'll talk about in more detail, recidivism happens a lot. When, spoiler, this is a big spoiler, when we see Tasty come back after she's released and she talks about how it was basically impossible for her to stay out of prison. She couldn't do it because she had absolutely no resources. And that is very true to life because ex-prisoners are given little to no resources to get back on their feet, especially if they're felons. Well, so what does the show get wrong? What do they gloss over or not portray accurately? One of those things is the consequences for talking too much. Snitching and crossing racial lines are actually much harsher than portrayed in the show. Yeah, for instance, when everybody listens to Piper's boyfriend on the This American Life type show talking about what she tells him about her experience in prison and all of the different people who she's essentially snitching on and everyone's hearing this, the retribution for that probably would have been much harsher in a real women's prison. And even though uh, with race, even though it's very segregated in the show, there's still a lot more mixing and crossing of those racial lines than there probably would be. Yeah. And the whole nudity issue. I mean, you know, the show opens with shower scenes. Um, the, in actuality, there's a lot less nudity in the showers because you have to just kind of watch your back. You might get assaulted. Yeah. And that, that's more true probably in male prisons. That was something that Jeff Smith pointed out in terms of, listen, you're really going to want to be naked for as short of a time as possible. Um, so essentially what the show gets wrong is that the worse is so much worse. The bad stuff is so bad. And so, you know, I I think that if they were to portray it as it actually is, the show would almost be unwatchable. Yeah. But on the bright side, one thing that I found that is true in prison, becoming more true in prison, is that yoga is practiced in a growing number of prisons. Yeah, because it is a great way to be active and also to relax And it's cheap. A lot of times the people who come into the prisons to teach the yoga classes are volunteers. Yeah, the New York Times did a whole piece on this and talked about how even in men's prisons, some of the the guys were really hesitant to go and do something they might have seen as not being really tough, but that anecdotally a lot of them report really positive benefits from a regular yoga practice. So there are yoga janes in prison. But then on a down note again, because really from here on, it kind of all the information that we're going to offer does get a bit dismal. Um, we should talk about trans people in prison because we have Sophia Bursett, who is played so wonderfully by Laverne Cox, who portrays a male to female uh, transgender person. 
who had undergone gender reassignment surgery and later is denied hormone treatment and is having to deal with the physical and emotional repercussions from that. And the situation for trans people who are incarcerated is really dismal. Right. And I, I think it's reflected pretty well in that issue that you just mentioned of having her uh, hormone therapy denied. In reality, 17 percent of trans people in prison are denied hormone treatment and often end up imprisoned according to their birth sex, which can lead to a huge amount of severe harassment. Yeah, especially for male to female pre-gender reassignment surgery prisoners who might be put in a men's prison, that risk of harassment definitely goes up. Um, and just the risk for going to jail, for being arrested, going to jail, being imprisoned is higher for trans people compared to the rest of the population. A report from the National Center for Transgender Equality found that 16% of trans people surveyed had spent at least some jail time or prison time because of things like unemployment, because the unemployment rate is twice that of the general population, which is often related to harassment, which is related to being transgender. And so because of that high rate of unemployment, they might turn to things like sex work, drug trades, and also be homeless. Right. And 16, also another 16, 16% of the respondents who had been in prison or jail reported being physically assaulted. 15% of respondents who'd been in jail reported they had been sexually assaulted. So in a way, the orange is the new black character, Sophia, has, I mean, aside from the, the hormone treatment issue, that portrays the situation for a trans prisoner in almost the best possible scenario. Right. I mean, she is still like, you know, verbally attacked and she still deals with a whole lot of people, you know, just saying terrible things to her. But she is not in a men's prison. Right. And the and side note, her hair salon probably wouldn't exist in a real I woman's prison. I do love her hair. Yeah, in the show, amazing. like, I, I swear, I just watched an episode last night and she's wearing this, like, headband and her hair is all braided. And I just, I was like, God, I wish I could do that to my hair, but it's not thick enough. Anyway, total tangent. But another nightmare situation that we've already mentioned is the special housing unit, the shoe, the solitary confinement where Piper goes when she was dancing a little provocatively and Sam Healy got a little upset with her. This is where inmates are separated from the rest of the population and they have very limited activity. Yeah, and about 5.7% of federal prisoners, around 10,000 people, are in the shoe at any given moment. And with the solitary conditions, some people have argued that the shoe constitutes a specific form of torture. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine. I mean, and, and in the show, Piper's only in there for about 48 hours, but I mean, she was already, you know, her character's already losing it. I can't, I can't imagine. Well, and then that relates back to the whole issue of arbitrary discipline. Right. Where you don't know exactly what you have to do to stay out of the shoe. If you simply cross someone in a way that they don't like, then you might be thrown in there. And I mean, and who's to say how long, you know, how long that you'll be in there. Right. Um, so let's take a deeper look 
away from Orange is the New Black, the show, and into women's prisons. And I cannot recommend the article that we found over at Bitch Magazine that did just this. It did an in-depth look at how Orange is the New Black compares to real life. And uh, this is a, a major source for a lot of these statistics that we're going to be tossing out. So for an idea of just how bad the situation is in terms of imprisonment in the United States, the U.S. is home to 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prison inmates. And women are this country's fastest growing prison population. And according to the Sentencing Project, the number of women incarcerated in the U.S. increased by 6 hundred and forty six percent between 1980 and 2010. That's from fifteen thousand one hundred and eighteen to one hundred and twelve thousand seven ninety seven. Yeah. And just to get even more specific, Oklahoma incarcerates more women per capita than any other state. Um, and if we break it down racially, As of 2010, black women have been incarcerated at nearly three times the rate of white women, and Hispanic women were incarcerated at 1.6 times the rate of white women. And even though those are huge disparities, it's actually narrowed as black women were incarcerated at six times the rate as white women in 2000. Um, and, And just for comparison, though, Black men are imprisoned at about 22 times the rate that black women are. White men are incarcerated at 10 times the rate of white women and Latino men at 16 times the rate. So even though the imprisonment of women has skyrocketed in the last 20 years, that's only a a small portion of the overall prison population, which is overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly black and Latino. Right. And as we'll get into uh, a little bit deeper in just a second, I mean, one of the consequences of, you know, having so many people in prison at any given time is just the economic hardships that people face, because once you've been to prison, it's so hard to claw your way back up. And uh, Dorothy Roberts, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, writes in the UCLA Law Review that mass imprisonment of blacks and Latinos allows the state to exert direct control over poorly educated, unskilled and jobless people who have no place in the market economy because of racism. It also preserves a racial caste system that civil rights reforms were supposed to abolish. And one of the big issues specifically related to the female prison population and something that Piper Kerman, who is the real life Piper Chapman, talks about a lot is how a third of prisoners are in for nonviolent drug offenses. In other words, these women aren't going out killing, assaulting, robbing. A lot of times it is, as it's portrayed in the show, of women being caught in the wrong place, making poor decisions, mind you. But being in the wrong place at the wrong time as part of drug deals that might be going on and the punishment for it in a lot of ways is so much greater than the crime because once you are in prison, even if you get out, it's so hard to stay out. But before we talk about life on the outside, we've got to talk about two big issues facing women on the inside that Orange is the New Black 
doesn't focus in on too much. The first of which is sexual assault. Right. Sexual abuse by guards is much more likely to happen in women's prisons. And one uh, prison that is focused on a lot is the Denver Women's Correctional Facility, which has the highest sexual assault rate in the nation, with 10.7% of inmates claiming sexual misconduct. And it should be noted that the national average is 2.4%. And that's at least of women who are even reporting this, because there are plenty of offenders who are scared to report sexual assault or rape for fear of retribution. And to give you an idea of how sexual abuse by guards compares to the women's prison population versus men's prisons, more than three-fourths of all reported staff sexual misconduct involves women victimized by male correctional officers. And and we see a little bit of that portrayal in Orange is the New Black, but it it pales in comparison to what these statistics indicate. And even before these women end up in prison, a lot of times they have already survived some kind of sexual abuse. 48 to 88 percent of women in prison are survivors of physical and sexual abuse. Right. And when you think about what that does to people, I mean, a lot of times that does put you on a path where you are more susceptible to you know, a lifestyle that involves drugs or or puts you in, you know, bad life situations. And so, you know, if you end up in prison and abuse is what you've known and you just continue to be physically or sexually abused, it can be hard to get past that. Yeah. And, and, and thinking about the attendant mental health issues that are coming into prison along with these women who have already encountered so much hardship. 73% of women in state prison in 2004 had a mental health problem. But are those kinds of things being addressed while they're in jail, while they're in prison? Probably not, because the system is completely overworked and totally flawed, and there are not dedicated resources to actually making sure that these women are in good and healthy shape inside and out to be prepared to live a life away from crime. Right. And they honestly can't even get away from the prison culture when they are giving birth. One in 33 women in federal prisons are pregnant and shackling these women when they give birth is still legal in 32 states. And I mean, this is a practice that the American Medical Association calls medically hazardous and barbaric. Yeah, I was astounded to learn that Illinois became the first state to pass a law banning shackling during childbirth in 1999. Only then did we start saying, huh, there seems to be something a little bit wrong with a woman who is giving birth, being handcuffed, her hands handcuffed to the bed frame and her feet being handcuffed to the bed frame. And as soon as that baby is delivered, it is probably taken away from her. There's one prisoner who recounted in an ABC News story about this, how she gave birth with her hand, hands and feet handcuffed and wasn't able to even contact her baby until 70 days later. Yeah, and she didn't, her husband was not allowed in the hospital room. It was just a guard there with her. And even though Illinois, for instance, has outlawed shackling, it doesn't mean that it stopped because there is recently a $4.1 million settlement for 80 Chicago inmates who were shackled between 2007 and 2010. It's still happening. 
Now, uh, a 2007 anti-shackling policy was enacted in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, but not, it should be noted, on a statewide level. And even if you aren't pregnant in prison, an overwhelming majority of the female prison population are also mothers. Around two-thirds of women, or 120,000 women in prison, have children. And, and what affects does this have on the children? Not a good one, not surprisingly. No. And, you know, the foster care system exploded in a parallel fashion to the explosion of the prison population. So the fact that it, I mean, it's not just women, you know, it's not just mothers. It's any any child whose parent or parents have been in prison are more likely to suffer negative effects. But yeah, the the foster more more kids are going into foster care as more parents are going in to prison. And so according to a Pew Charitable Trust report, one in every 28 children in the United States has a parent in jail or prison. But when you crystallize that down along racial lines for African-American children, that number is one in nine. And for Hispanic children, that's one in 28. Whereas one in 57 white children have a parent in jail or prison. And we should also note that uh, on a population wide basis, there are more women in prison with kids than men in prison with kids. And a lot of times because women end up being the primary caregiver, having that mom in prison does have such a debilitating effect a lot of times for these kids. Not to say that if, uh, you know, a mom is involved in drug abuse or is living in an unsafe environment, that, that that's a good thing for the kid. But it's, but it's like, uh, it's such, it's yet another argument for rehabilitating mm-hmm. rather than just incarcerating. Right. Well, along these same lines, one horrifying thing that came to light several months ago was the issue of sterilization of women who give birth while they're in prison. Um, this is coming from the Center for Investigative Reporting. Uh, California prisons have sterilized nearly 250 women over the past few decades, and nearly 150 of those were between 2006 and 2010. And they talked to o- OBGYN James Heinrich, who's in this California prison, and his defense is is kind of chilling. He says that spending money to sterilize these women is better than spending money on welfare for these unwanted children as they procreate more. Ooh. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so the, the issue behind this, the controversy, it's, it's not like these women are saying, Hey, would you mind? Right. A lot of times this is, it's coercion. It's forced. It's, you know, this one woman's account was that, you know, as she was getting closer and closer to her due date, this Heinrich, this Dr. Heinrich was like, you know, you should really think about it. Are you going to do it? You're going to do it. We're going to do it. Right. And so, you know, the day came and he, you know, just went ahead and did it. That's horrifying because it's so indicative of how a lot of times people, men, women, kids alike who end up in the criminal justice system for whatever reason cease to be a person. Right. And they just become a statistic. They become a problem. You know, and yet it is expensive to pay for people to be in jail. It's about $60,000 a year to pay for, of taxpayer money to pay for one woman 
mm-hmm. who's in prison. And that's insane. But that's not the problem of, you know, it's, it's a, it's a system wide problem. I feel like that's a top down issue. Sterilization, treating those women like animals in a lot of ways is certainly not going to stop that cycle. Right. And it's, it's just, it was so horrifying, partially because, you know, this country does have a history of doing that. Yeah. But doing it particularly to people of color. And so to hear this story that California prisons have so recently still been forcing women or coercing women into it, it's, that is eye opening. And that doesn't change the fact that there are still, what, two thirds of women in prison who go into prison already with kids. And those kids are at heightened risk for getting in trouble at school, depression, and then ending up in jail. So it really is cyclical, which leads us to the problem with recidivism of leaving and coming right back because roughly four in 10 adult American offenders will return to prison within three years of their release, according to a 2011 report from the Pew Charitable Trusts. Right. And so this is going back to the tasty character on Orange is the New Black when she does talk about how much she had to deal with and what landed her back in prison, because prisoners simply don't just walk out. Um, you have all sorts of parole and probation fees, jail booking fees, jail per diems for pretrial detention, pre-sentence report fees. Just so much, so many little rules and regulations and so much big money that you have to deal with once you get released from jail. And if, for instance, you have a felony drug conviction, you're ineligible for housing assistance. And I think the, the housing issue is one thing that landed Tasty back in jail in the show she had nowhere to go. She had nowhere to sleep. What are you going to do? Um, and only about 10% of inmates attend educational, vocational, or treatment programs on a given day, not necessarily because they don't want to, but because those rehabilitational programs are often not offered, probably because there's not money for it. There aren't resources. And the way that we often dehumanize the people who need those kinds of resources. And it's unfortunate because research from Pew and other sources have shown the benefits, monetary and otherwise, that are reaped when you install educational, vocational, etc. kinds of training programs for prisoners. Right, because Kerman, Real Life Piper, talked about how, you know, she did attend some of those classes, even though she herself had a man and a job waiting for her when she got out of prison. You know, she she talked about going to some of those quote-unquote classes and how she went to a housing class, you know, where people had questions about, like, how do I get an apartment? How do I pay rent? Like, how do I do this and that? But they were teaching them about home repair, and applying siding to the side of your house or, you know, just really random things like that where it's like, well, this isn't helping anyone. It's not real life, you know, reality based teaching. Yeah. And in prison vocation programs, for instance, like preparing people to get jobs, which is really, really hard if you are a felon, especially uh, those kinds of programs produce net benefits of over thirteen thousand dollars per offender or over $12 for every dollar invested and will net a 29% drop in recidivism. So that's just one example of how the system could not only help these people, but also 
help stop this cycle that has led to this overwhelming, like metastasizing prison population where prisons are, and jails are now being outsourced to private companies, for-profit companies. We don't have room for our prison population in the right. United States. Isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah. That we arrest so many people and have no place to put them. Well, I mean, you know, I'm saying this from a privileged position, obviously, but it doesn't it seem like it's common sense to, and I realize this is moving a mountain, but doesn't it seem like it's common sense to put more effort and money into community programs, things to actually help people, whether you're someone who has been in jail or, or not, but to help strengthen communities and educate people so that they don't cycle back. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a comprehensive problem that you could talk about from the way that prisons are set up all the way to how our laws are established. And I mean, there have been, um, there has been recent news about eliminating, uh, mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses, which would cut down a lot on, um, all of these massive numbers of drug offenders who are currently behind bars. Um, and then you take it back even further to education, keeping kids in school, keeping families intact, etc. You know, yeah, it's the problem of our exploding prisons is bigger than those prisons for sure. Exactly. Um, and to me, the <laughs> if there is good news, um, it's that there are people like Piper Kerman who are really trying to shine a light on these issues. I think it's a good thing that even though it might not be the most realistic portrayal of women's prison, I think that it's great that Genji Cohen made Orange is the New Black, and I'm glad that it has hit such a cultural nerve and that people are asking these questions of, oh, well, what's what's it like in real life? And I think the reason why we're so curious to know how it applies to real life, because it highlights these women as real people. Right. And not just, oh, oh, they're just prisoners. They're just offenders. They're just criminals. Keep them away from me. Well, there's a point in one of the episodes where uh, Red is talking to Natasha Leone's character. Um, and, you know, Natasha Leone is saying something and Red is like, well, you know, what are the what do the taxpayers care? They don't care. You know, we're eating this junk because they're just trying to watch what the bottom line is. You know, we're the bad guys. And I think I think there is that attitude of like, well, I don't care about what anything is like in prison for prisoners because they're prisoners. They're bad guys. And it's like, well, but you have to look at the cultural effect, the societal effect that all of this is having. Exactly. Um, and can, can I close off with a really long quote from Piper Kerman? Please, please do. <laughs> Who after after learning more about her and what she does and how she uses her now very elevated platform to advocate for those women that she was in prison with and who are in prison right now. I have so much respect for her. Um, and she was talking to the Washington Post about the current state of the women's prison population. And she says, I think that women in prison are really emblematic of typical 
low-level, non-violent offenders. That is a giant growth area in terms of our prison system over the last 30 years. We're putting people in prison who we never would have put in prison before, and there's a staggering social cost when we talk about the families, but also it costs about $60,000 a year, and that adds up really quickly. And we're talking about someone who is not this prominent threat to safety. It's just a policy, and that's it. And families and communities are being destroyed because of it. Yeah. So... What can people do if they want to help out? If they are my, if they are as concerned about what life is really like in women's prisons and in, in jails and prisons in general, what what can people do to help out? Well, there is the Women's Prison Association, which is uh, what Piper Kerman is affiliated with. That's at wpaonline.org. And then there is this sentencing project, uh, which we referenced earlier, and that is at sentencingproject.org. So now I want to hear from you. Uh, com is where you can send your emails. Thoughts on Orange is the New Black, Women's Prison, the Criminal Justice System. I know we threw a lot of information at you for this one, but it's a really big one to tackle. So we want to hear all of your thoughts. com. You can also hit us up on Facebook or tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And we've got a couple of letters to share. And now back to our letters. Well, since we're about to wrap up our special series on Lean In, Women Work in the Will to Lead by Sheryl Sandberg, we want to share a couple of letters from our episode on the workplace fear factor. This is a letter from Cynthia. Uh, She says, I'm a chemistry professor at a large public university. I have always felt like it was a complete accident that I was accepted to a top graduate program. I would get so worried about it that I wouldn't participate in the extremely important study groups my first year, instead choosing to cry over my intelligible books alone. Later, I found that many of my classmates, male and female, felt the same. However, we women would over-prepare and obsess to the point that it was detrimental to our health. My graduate advisor, another woman who admits to strong imposter syndrome, taught me to fake it until I make it. Well... I've now made it, and every day I feel more and more like I deserve it. I've worked my butt off, darn it, and I'm a great chemist because of it. She says, keep up your good work. I love your podcast. So thank you, Cynthia. And keep up your chemistry. She's very cool. Uh, well, I've got one here from Becca, subject line, imposter in the laboratory. She writes, I'm a recent college graduate who was fortunate enough to land a fantastic job in a research lab straight out of school. I don't admit this to anyone, but I really only got the job through personal connections. It's true that this isn't really unusual, but knowing that I didn't earn the job through merit alone has made me feel like a total imposter. I am surrounded by intelligent individuals, and I often doubt my ability to work alongside them. I'm three months into this job, and I have to say that this imposter syndrome has been strangely motivational for me. My first month here was shaky, and I felt really undeserving of this position. However, I harnessed that uneasy and I have been working really hard to prove that I belong here. Apparently, my hard work is paying off. Last week, my supervisor told me she was impressed with my work. Thanks for the great podcast. You two have helped me through hours of culturing cells, extracting DNA, and countless other tests that sound more exciting than they really are. 
So keep on rocking it, Becca, and everybody else who's listening. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Tumblr. We're at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And check out our pictures on Instagram. That's right. We're on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And finally, don't forget to tune in this Friday to the final chapter in our exploration on Cheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. And don't forget to tune in over on YouTube for new videos every week coming out. YouTube.com slash Stuff Mom Never Told You. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 